I think we're going to start. I think there's some really bad traffic in London, so we're going to have some stragglers, but um, we'll, we'll get started. So yeah, good evening and welcome. I know it's, it's freeze week for those of you who have been kind of schlepping around London. Thank you so much for coming here on a Friday evening for this talk. Um, I'm Alana Pardo. I'm a curator here at the Barbican. And I'm really delighted um, um, to be introducing this talk this evening between the very critically acclaimed and wonderful artist and filmmaker Garrett Bradley and the curator, writer and critic Echo Eschen, who um, yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with and um, so I look forward to this talk and who will no doubt be doing a very deep dive into Garrett's practice that kind of critically considers issues around the social, economic and kind of racial politics of everyday life including its joys, pleasures, and pains, and moves kind of seamlessly between kind of the incarceral state in the US to familial relations and community building. So I'm very look much looking forward to learning more. Um, and we are delighted to be teaming up this evening with uh, the Listen Gallery um, to mark really the occasion of um, Garrett's debut London show, which opened a couple of weeks ago. So for those of you who haven't seen it, please go. It's absolutely beautiful. Spend some time. Um, and soak it up and be absorbed. Um, so I'm just going to say a few words about our speakers, our, our uh, guests this evening. So Garrett, who uh, presumably needs very little introduction to some of you, is not only an artist, but is also an Oscar-nominated filmmaker who works across narrative, documentary, and experimental modes of filmmaking. In 2020, Garrett presented her debut documentary feature-length film, Time, um, which was nominated for over 57 awards. That's a pretty amazing accolade. And won 20, time, and won 20 of those uh, nominations, including Best Director at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, and Bradley lives and works in New Orleans, although has been having a pretty kind of peripatetic lifestyle for the moment. And Echo, um, Echo Eschen is chairman of the fourth Plinth Commissioning Group and former director of the ICA. As a curator, he's been responsible for exhibitions, including most recently in the Black Fantastic at the Hayward. I'm sure many of you um, flocked to see that. Um, and he's also um, the curator of Made You Look, Dandyism and Black Masculinity at the Photographer's Gallery. He's curated works by uh, shows with Hassan Hajan, um, uh, Africa State of Mind at the, um, that was presented in Nottingham, I think, right? and uh, the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. And he's also the author of Black Gold of the Sun, which was nominated for the Orwell Prize, um, and also the author of numerous other books, including the accompanying publication for In the Black Fantastic and Africa State of Mind Contemporary Photography Reimagines the Continent. And he's contributed to catalogues on artists, including Kahinda Wiley, Chris Ophelia, Wangechi Mutu, and John Okumpa, amongst many others. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Garrett and Echo on to the stage. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you all for being here this evening. Thank you, Garrett, for being here in London. Thank you. Um, look, let's, you know, we're going to talk. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes or so. We'll have time for questions. But I want to just start, you know, we're here on the occasion of the opening of your first London show with The Glisten. Uh, it's a film called Safe. And I want to just start, let's start with interiority. The film, it's a three screen work. It is an attempt, to, I think either you describe it or, or the rubric around the show describes it as an attempt 
to explore entire worlds which may be elusive or indiscernible, but remain vivid, infinite, and parallel to the outside world. These are interior worlds. Mm -hmm. Can you describe can you describe the territory you're trying to map out? Yeah. Um, also, first of all, thank you, everybody who made it out here. I know you guys are probably all exhausted, and I know it rains every day in London anyway, but I appreciate <laughs> you making it through the rain. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there was, you know, this pa trying to make things right now in the world is difficult, I mm -hmm. think. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot for us to work through, but I also think that there's this level of paralysis mm -hmm. that I certainly was feeling and that I was feeling with uh, within my own community and with my friends. Occasioned by what? By which, I mean, we by could... By like every, by like, you know, Apple News, by like my phone, by just walking down the street, by the sounds that you're hearing. Um, you know, I feel an increased sensitivity to like sirens and helicopters and you know, all the alerts and the things that are around us and um, and how that's affecting not only my emotional psyche, but I think also um, the, the thoughts that come to mm -hmm. my, my mind. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of taking the long way yeah, to, yeah. Your, to your question, but, um, you know, a lot of my work is built off conversations with people in my life. Um, I think I've always been just actually more interested in what other people think about things than what I think about them, you know? Um, and when you're kind of trying to, I'm trying to facilitate a space for a lot of people to kind of throw something in the pot and from that emerges this other thing, you know, that I myself mm -hmm. certainly, that none of us as individuals actually could have created on our own. And so there was this like ongoing series of text messages that were happening with uh, two of my friends, um, Donna Crump uh, and Alon Watts, both of whom I've worked with before. Um, Donna was sort of like the central woman of America. Lon was in Alone and America as well. Mm -hmm. um, and who you see, that's, these are Donna's hands, arms, arm hands. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we were just in conversation around, you know, I was sort of like, how are you feeling? And how do you feel about how you feel? Mm -hmm. And paralysis kept kind of coming up as... Is this because you were working across the last couple of years or... You mean in terms of like uh, the question? Well, no, no. I'm just in terms of kind of COVID time, and I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, there's a broader sense of, like you say, all these kind of disruptions yeah. to your psyche. Yeah. But were this was this a particular heightened period, or is this just the general condition I and a sensitivity to that general condition? I think it was a general condition. I mean, I think that, you know, there were things that certainly happened this past summer in the states. Mm. Um, like Uvalde, for instance, you know, that were also happening while we were in the midst of, of sort of creation of making that, yes, did of, of course affect us in ways we couldn't have anticipated and that were more specific than a sort of generalized mm -hmm. foundational sense of paralysis. Um, but, you know, that this, this, this thing kept coming up for us. And then I think the guilt around feeling paralyzed, mm -hmm. feeling as if one doesn't know what to do, that you feel like you want to do something, but you don't know what what to do about it right um and that and having them sort of articulate what those feelings were brought us to this next sort of phase of the of the process and the process for me is also it's like this russian doll you know which is really excruciating i have to be honest because it's like you want to just get to this is what i'm making this is why i'm making it but there's obviously something so much higher you know that has to reveal itself to us 
that is completely dependent on how well you're formulating your questions, mm -hmm. you know? And those questions really, for me, are dependent on the answers. There's this weird, like, chicken and egg thing. Although I get into this debate, I really do believe the egg comes first. <laughs> I really do, and we can talk about that. Yeah. Anyone who wants to talk about it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so then that brought us to this thing around intuition mm -hmm. versus instinct. What, are, what, are, how did they, what were the differences? between those two different things for them, how did they show up in their bodies differently? And so sort of long story short, we have these, these conversations around paralysis, around intuition, around instinct, and I then kind of will take words or phrases out of those conversations and images will come to mind and then those images become basically the script um, and then uh, Lon and Donna essentially reenact those things. So they're integral to the sort of the script making process and um, and then to the sort of the gesturing that happens. Mm -hmm. um, I forgot even what your question <laughs> was. Uh, that's, one, I mean, that's a, that's a very good answer. But yeah. the question is really about interiority. Right, right. And I think, I mean, you've answered that anyway, to the extent that I think what's so fascinating, if people have and haven't seen the film, it's a three screen work, but the screens are split up across yeah. the space of the listen and each film speaks to a different aspect, I mm -hmm. suppose, mm -hmm. of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. So a sense of gesture. Yeah. A sense of, but I mean, well, I mean. Yeah, well, yeah, so um, interiority, right? So then the other thing about this is like, what we're talking about is interiority. Like the, the, the basis of our conversations obviously are what are we feeling mm. inside of ourselves. And, you know, Kevin Kwashi, who was a professor of mine at um, Smith College, um, and now is at Brown University. You know, he writes about this a lot. Not he only writes about stillness and solitude stillness, and quiet. Right, the distinction between those two things. Um, but also something that, you know, and you, you, know, you mentioned this in, in your introduction, but I think for me this idea that interiority and the imagination, the things that exist within us are just as radical as the things that we uh, choose to share publicly, mm. you know? in terms of also how we decide to interact and resist our external circumstances. And so that really also then was sort of like the third part of what we realized I think we were doing. Um, and I, I think about it, I think about SAFE as one work that's mm -hmm. three channels. And I was really interested in um, trying to think about the gallery space because it was the first time I was able to work in that space. Um, as like, uh, and this is gonna sound corny, but you know, but as like, you know, your head, like literally mm -hmm. as your headspace, you mm -hmm. know, and each channel is almost like um, a different thought, you know, that and they those thoughts keep rotating over and over again. In my in my experience, in trying to develop a meditation practice, one of the most powerful things has been being able to see my own mind, being able to see um, how in ten minutes. The, be able to identify what those thoughts are that keep repeating, right? And so throughout our days, it's not that that changes, right? We, we might still have the same, like, thoughts over, and, the same three thoughts over and over and over again that just repeat through our mind throughout mm. our day. Um, and we're just, um, they're making us feel a certain way, and then they're making us behave a certain way, and we're not necessarily conscious of them, right? Um, and sometimes that same thought can feel different depending on what room you're in, how much you've eaten, what sonically is happening around you. And so what would it mean to try to think about this, this entire piece in each one of these channels 
as one of those rotating thoughts, which is also why like a lack of duration felt important. It's not something that you're, you're you have to sit down and watch the whole thing. It's going to keep going whether you sit there mm -hmm. or not, and you can you can kind of hop around and hopefully it feels a bit more playful. So the images are the same, but the sound is is changing, and I felt like sort of an attempt to try to play with like that one to one of of how our brains work. Yeah. I mean, I mean, all sorts of things follow from that. But just to begin, I suppose, what I find so interesting, the choices you must have to make, because so you describe this almost as a kind of process you're feeling your way to, mm. but clearly also there's a lot of choices you have to make. You talk about a script, mm. a lot of choices about what you shoot, what you keep, what you don't shoot, <laughs> what you decide not to do. Yeah. I mean, can you describe that a little bit? Because the end result is this dream, well, this interrogation and mm. intuition and, 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 and instinct and so on. Mm. But can you, can you describe the, 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 the choices you're making mm. as, a, as an artist through mm. that? Yeah, there's so many, there's so yeah. many ways to, to answer that. And, you know, I mean, I think the first place I could start is where, I'm filming mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of it even though we're filming in New Orleans which is a place that's been home to me for the past 11 years and um, I have a very strong f community in uh, there um, but is in a black box so um, be in a black box for me is you know imagine this whole room is black <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah and and so there's endless possibilities um, within that. It's like a no place and it's an everything place. And so I have to start with something really, really specific, mm. you know, um, but you want to leave enough room. And I think that this has to do not just with being creative and I don't, I can't think of the right word, but you know, who you're building in terms of your crew, who's in that space with you, not just in front of the camera, but who's also behind the camera um, is really important in facilitating um, a situation in which when things come to you quickly, you can you can get them, you know? Um, I think part of what really excited me with this was also being able to deal with um, less overt subject matter and trying to yeah. straddle the line between, yeah. you know, how you actually deal with abstraction when you're dealing with a literal, with, with a machine that is very, very literal by nature. Um, and so, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, you start with something very specific, but mm. then you want to be able to have space to take advantage of something that reveals itself to you. And in a black box, you know, I mean, a lot of what you're seeing, a lot of the image making in this in this work is actually produced just from one light, from a 4K light, which is just a, a very powerful production light. Um, looking at it, throwing it out of focus, you know, pushing in and out of it with a dolly. Um, working with a zoom which has a slightly different effect I mean both both are kind of you know you guys have seen um what was a uh, Steven Spielberg a uh, jaws yes so when you're you know the zolly mm -hmm. the zolly shot is like you're dollying and you're and you're zooming at the same Ooh, time you okay. know um and so they have very different effects with one another but being able to, to play with both of those mm -hmm. then being able to move the camera a little bit to the right and being like wow look at all those amazing lens flares that are happening yeah. right so it was it's also you know you want to be able to play it i think that's the closest that i can get to being a musician or a painter even though i could neither i could never do any of those things there's a level of immediacy that i really 
envy that I think a lot of filmmakers or people who are reliant on things like cameras and um, really envy. And it was it's kind of the closest you can get to that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's one of the works, I think it's the, the sequentially, it's the third screen you come to, which mm -hmm. is split in two. Yeah. And then one screen seems to be black and white, as it were, and then yeah. this colour and light starts to bleed across into there. Mm -hmm. And it's this mesmerising mm -hmm. effect. You don't quite realise it. I had to sit through it a few times to realise what was happening in there. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's mesmerising and compelling. And that's what I mean. I mean, the... The idea, for instance, that you talk about a script in there, mm. it feels, the effect feels like you are open to a discovery. You sit there and you experience something. Mm. But it's so interesting to think that you've had to plan this process. And does that mean that you have a clear sense of where you want to end up? Mm. That's such a great question because, I mean, yes and no. And I think that everyone's going to be different. For me, I, I do need to have an understanding of the essence and I need to have a very clear sense of intention mm. before I start anything. Whatever happens in between that, how I get to those places, um, doesn't really matter in the same kind of way. I mean, I think that, I mean, that was definitely true, for instance, like with time, which is a more traditional, uh, like documentary film, right? But I started making that film thinking I was doing another 13-minute short documentary, right? I didn't realize that Fox had like 100, 100 plus hours of her own yeah. personal archive until after I was done filming. When you're making a documentary, and there's a whole debate obviously around just this distinction between journalism and documentary filmmaking too that I think is important and for, you know, that needs to be talked about more. Um, but you know, you obviously you can't. It's unethical to predict what the ending is going to mm. be. It's like totally not okay. But you need to have a sense of intention. That and that intention is the thing that's guiding you every single day. Um, for me, I also I don't go follow somebody from the minute they wake up to when they go to bed. I spend time with them beforehand. I get a sense of what their daily ritual and routine is, and I ask myself, in what ways are these things fitting into the intention of why it is I want to make this mm. thing. And of course, that intention is also based on the conversation that I'm having beforehand with people around what is your intention in wanting to make this documentary? Um, is it the same, right? And when they're aligned, then we know, then that's how you also create transparency and agency. And there's an ethical um, foundation from which everybody is operating. Um, but so when we were, so once I realized there was this whole archive that mm. I that I, I wasn't aware of I knew that my process was gonna have to change radically but my intention yeah. had to stay exactly the same and I'd like to think like every single frame that I was pulling from her archive fit into that initial intention it didn't change and I think that that's the same you know with this work as well um, and that's kind of what I'm getting at that's why it's such a frustrating process because um, Sometimes you have an inkling, or I should say, like you have an instinct for what your intention is, but you really have to be able to, or I have to be able to articulate that clearly. And because the foundation was something that was inherently so elusive, mm. it was like, fuck, every day it changed, you know what I mean, almost together. Um, I mean, Donna, you know, you were talking about her rolling down the hill. I mean, that's really also, that's kind of an articulation of our inability yeah. <laughs> to... Yeah. 
to get well, there in a really concise way, you know? To make a film about sensations, feelings that are deep and important and significant on a personal level, but we don't have words for. And how to visualize that. Yeah. Um, do you, I spent time thinking about uh, this uh, book by Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, mm. Black mm. Interior. Mm. Um, and in the introduction, that's a series of essays. Uh, she says that we're too often prisoners of the real. We being mm. you know, black people, we're too often prisoners of the real. Where is our abstract space? Mm. Our space of the real slash not real, our own unconscious. Mm. She's calling out as a writer and a poet for an appreciation of the significance of these spaces of interiority sometimes domestic interior spaces, but psychological spaces and how important those are on a personal level, but also on a raciological level, mm -hmm. if you want. Mm -hmm. The acknowledgement that for black people, our interior spaces are often not honored or brought to life yeah. or discussed or addressed. I mean, I don't know, is this is any of this in consideration as you're thinking about, as you're thinking, I mean, it's funny because I think, on one hand, like not overtly, because yeah. it just comes naturally. Yeah. One, giving oneself permission to be able to even say I'm not going to focus on something that is inherently about the exterior mm. was was something that I was I was I felt I didn't even ask myself can I do this. It was just something that I felt was very important in the same way that someone might feel going to a protest was mm. you don't ask yourself should I do this right. Um, Although that was very, at least in the States, it was really interesting. Amongst mm -hmm. my friends, there was a lot of conversation around, like, do we need to be going to the protests, you know? Mm, interesting. Like, and you know, like we've done the work every day. <laughs> well, we don't need to go to the protests, you yeah. know what I mean? It's now for other people to be there to, yeah. to do that protest work. Um, but there was something else I was going to, oh, I mean, music is, is a really great example. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, hip-hop, like, for me, has, has that's my go-to. Yeah. I listen to all different types of music, but... Yeah. It's another really great example of how when you think about the lyric, mm. you know, I mean, how could anyone even debate that black interiority isn't, yeah. not, has dominated world culture? Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, we could get, <laughs> I'm holding myself back from talking about certain things. Amongst other, I'm thinking about Mob Deep and Quiet Storm for a moment. I'm mm. thinking about these records where these men who, on one level, you know, they present themselves as hyper-masculine and so mm -hmm, on, mm -hmm. but actually when you listen to what mm. they're doing, both lyrically, but then in terms of the sonic construction of the stuff, it's kind of heartbreaking yeah. records, records and songs of deep sensitivity mm -hmm. in play in so many different ways. Um, Coming back to the film, so a number of things that are happening in SAFE, I would suggest, a number of approaches that are in play simultaneously. As you said, your approach to making this film and to making the film that came before this, this is part of a trilogy, the film that came before this, AKA, mm -hmm. you begin with these multiple hours of conversation mm -hmm. with your kind of participants. But then the result here with this work is you have these layers of, of conversation, but then also the composite soundscape mm. that comes into play, the sounds of the streets and the city, found sounds around. Mm. There's a non-linearity to the films. You can come and go with them. It's mm. multi-channel, the sense of these 
works distributed across the space. Mm. It's an abstract work. Mm. It's, a, it's a work that, I suppose the thing that, that it's a radically decentered work in that it doesn't privilege your single point of view mm. as the director. Mm. You have to explore and experience it. You have to encounter it. You have to be in the space with the work. Mm. That's a it's a it's a dramatic and really interesting and radical way of thinking about what you can do with mm. film. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, I I was also just really interested in trying to create, trying to blur the line as much as possible. Um, you know, architecture obviously has, is a big part of the work too, mm. in a way that. I was able to start to think about more with America, and America, you know, was I, I was actually really self-conscious about um, that, like mm -hmm. just you know, like well, why are you trying to bring it into like a museum space or a gallery space? Like why it's you know why why do that you know? And well, but the, the, let's let's do, so what what self yeah I mean you did that and did that very successfully. So what was what was the tension for you? I think that I think it just goes back to just you need to have a reason, yeah. right? And for me, there was a very clear reason for why I needed to leave two-dimensional space off the screen and be in a physical world. Mm -hmm. With America, it was this idea of really trying to create a, a level of intersection and the crossroads mm. and to work with material, transparent material, because, you know, America is, is 12 different vignettes. Each is sort of representing... Um, uh, an individual moment in American history yes. that's sort of lesser known. Yeah. And so being able to think about how people could actually make uh, emotional um, and visual connections based on their own curiosity and proximity to the work. And so, so the work is shown on these four intersecting, yeah. two, four intersecting four screens. Yeah. Yeah. Four, yeah. yeah, and I call them flags. And, and, and so you're going to make those connections in ways that like you wouldn't be able to just where I'm, you have a it's a it's a much more linear experience when you're sitting here and you're looking at a screen right um and i think you know with this work there was an there was a way to kind of expand on that as you said that was just as much about utilizing each uh, space but connecting them all sonically mm. meant that i could potentially try to get one step further in um, dissolving that barrier between the interior of the gallery and the exterior of this world yeah. You know, yeah. um, and I think, you know, you hear a lot of sounds that, you know, we recorded in New Orleans um, and those are embedded also with little pieces of dialogue that are like kind of barely discernible from our conversations. Um, Udit, Udit Deseja, who I work with a lot, you know, we, we work really <coughs> intensely on like how to um, how to do that. And we ended up using a melody that was from the first AKA. So. The idea is that maybe in some ways you could actually eventually show all three films together in the same space and sonically mm -hmm. they're all going to fit together mm -hmm. perfectly. That's sort of another thought anyway. But, you know, trying to get through the wall, you know what I mean? You don't have to be in such a precious space <coughs> to experience something. It can carry with you. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things was the sound drew you from space to space. I'm in the first room watching the thing. Then you're aware <laughs> Yeah. That there's something just mm. on the edge of your consciousness. Mm. And so you go exploring for mm. it. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself in another space and you realise it's actually the sound, but also the, there's a bit of light bleed. You can see something. Mm. You're not 
quite sure what it is. And yeah. you have to go in search of it. Yeah. And then once you're there, you're there, you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It's... Great. I'm so <laughs> glad. <laughs> I mean, I think it was, <coughs> if I'm right, John Acomfra, the artist filmmaker, John described this as post-figurative film, mm. which I think is a really interesting concept. I don't know, is that does that chime with you? Is that, I mean... Is that a, a valid description? Um, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I, John is like a hero of mine, so I feel like anything he says, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, you know? Yeah. I mean, he could say anything, yeah. and I would just totally go with it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I like this, well, again, I think I'd read that as a way of thinking about how you can, yeah, how you can decenter mm. the experience and mm. how you can give it back almost mm. to the people who are your participants mm. or your subjects if the intention is to listen and share with them. Yeah. Then maybe you have to open up the experience then of watching and being with yeah. as well as that. I think so. And I think, and I think, um, I think the ability to move and have something stay with you you yeah. know, it's a new concept for me yeah. that I, I is I want to keep building on. Yeah. You know. Um. So I mean, it's the it's the second in a trilogy. Yeah. The first work that's a that's more that's that's a single screen work. Yeah. And it traces the relationships between mothers and daughters yeah. or into mixed race families or families of the same race with varying mm -hmm. skin tones. And you look at this, uh, I mean, wh actually, which year was this from? Uh, 2019, I think. So, not, I mean, not, not very far away. Yeah. There's a recurring phrase in AKA, are you color struck? Yeah which I love, just works as this motif that yeah. recurs and recurs and recurs. I mean, I know that's got historical antecedents in terms of where it comes from in American culture, yeah. but can you, can you explain what you were doing overall with that film and, yeah. and the significance of that as a, as a phrase? Yeah, yeah. so, um, so, I'll, so with, with the first AKA, what kind of started all of this yeah. was actually came from like a failed attempt to think about what a, like a more traditional adaptation of a lot of these films, um, like Imitation of Life, for instance, yeah. or Pinky, that were looking at sort of the tragic mulatto, yeah. that were looking at the relationship between... Or I guess Black as a Berry or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and, and But they were all kind of obviously constrained within the time periods in which they were made, yeah. and, um, and the fact that they were all made by white men, and so it was like they were kind of you know, getting there, but they couldn't quite get there. Giant mm -hmm. is another uh, Ooh, one that comes to yeah. mind. Doesn't you know? Is dealing with um, it on a in a different way mm. and very much more historically within Texas and the relationship. You know, anyway, that's a whole. I could just talk about that. Um, but uh, but trying to think through, like, what would it mean to do like a, a more traditional adaptation of a film like Imitation of Life? Yeah. And in my attempts of doing that, I realized. I really wasn't able to answer for myself in what ways it was actually relevant. In what way would it actually, would that storyline actually contribute in any kind of meaningful way to this present moment? Um, and so I kind of stopped and realized, well, I, why don't I ask the people in my life, you yeah. know, and even beyond that, you know? Um, and so I ended up working with three different um, mother-daughter couples. Um, 
and 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 actually really just facilitating conversations between the two of mm. them about race, about how they moved through the world um, differently based on mm. their skin tones, their relationships to, to love, to the workforce, how those things um, varied. Um, and those conversations then were sort of pulled into phrases and sentences that then informed the visual, the form mm. of, of that whole film, those fil that film. And those women are in the film. Um, and so Lindsay Bowlers, who um, you're referring to, she you know, asked her mom, because she was, she was kind of, she found that she was dating guys that she mm -hmm. felt like her mom would approve of. Um, and, <laughs> which I guess is like kind of basic. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I guess like that happens a lot maybe, but yeah. um, you know, it, was a, it wasn't something that they had talked about in, mm. uh, in, in any kind of really in-depth way. Yeah. And obviously it was really about also what her mom was bringing to, to that, where was that coming from? That, you know, that was that expectation actually really her mom's or was it something else that had been kind of mm. embedded in her culturally? Um, and so she asked her mom over and over again, are you, are you color struck, right? And that, that was the first time for me that I had then could understand what the visual space of the whole work was. Yeah. And even though of course it's speaking to tone, gradation, black and white, I saw just like a full spectrum of, of yeah. color. So I worked a lot with um, different filtra glass filtration yeah. on the lenses. Well, we should talk about what color struck means. Well, there's a whole sort of historical uh, space. I mean, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, yeah, yeah. touches on it. I mean, it's it, in a more kind of, uh, I'd say, local everyday level that's, that's not as historical or, or rooted in literature. It just kind of means: Are you? Do you lean towards a lighter persuasion? Mm. You know, are you? Um, do you have a problem? Mm. You know, kind of <laughs> in so many basic ways. Yeah. In so many basic ways, which is not so much a conversation you see in a feminine space. Mm. I think that, you know, clearly, at least within the context of like the conversation amongst Black women, I think that you see that happening a lot with men. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, m men you know, that being projected onto men and black mm -hmm. men, obviously in America, at least I'll just speak for, you know, within the States, like that kind of programming that's affected them. You don't really, s I don't feel like it's as much of a conversation around us as women necessarily going towards lighter skinned men, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. Um, but it's, it's deep. It's very deep. And mm. I think that there's a way, you know, I was interested in talking about it in a way that was not there to like reveal something to white audiences. That's not what it's about. It's really about us, again, trying to think through what are all of the, what are the multitudes of images that can come from the emotions that we feel, from the things that have been embedded inside of us and projected onto us, and how can those things be articulated in ways that are meaningful and that are a respite, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, what's so fascinating is across these two films, we see emerging a visual lexicon, a way of seeing, mm. a way of ex articulating interiority and emotion, psychological depth. Mm -hmm. In fact, that uh, I'm not sure has existed before. Mm. Like, uh, I think about, I think about uh, Tina Camp's notion of, nation of a black gaze. Mm. Uh, Tina Camp talks about how one of the consequences of having artists like yourself working is that it's not just the fact that we see uh, more black figures but actually what we collectively 
come to is a place where we can see with and stand beside the point of view of black artists and black filmmakers. Mm -hmm. We see what they see. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the distinction and the, sort of the joy and the nuance of these films mm -hmm. is that you offer a way of seeing which, and you privilege the complexity mm. of that as well as the possibilities of beauty inherent in mm. that. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I think, uh, thank you for putting it that way because I think that that's, that in and of itself is radical, right? Yeah. To say that we all have complex imaginations, yeah. we all have things that are happening in our minds, you yeah. know. And I think when you're when you're put in a place of um, culturally being sort of forced into this place of observation of others, yes, it also kind of then it has this accumulative effect as if we're just there to observe, yeah, you know, or to be observed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I mean this is one of the things such an interesting inversion one of the I, I would suggest that one of the conditions of black being in society we live in is constantly being looked at mm. constantly being judged and so on so actually to turn this around not to turn it around to the extent that we're looking now just at the world but we're mm. looking through ourselves now mm -hmm. this is this is the radical position mm. to give voice to that interiority to mm. give voice to the well I think you said to, to the brain, to the interior spaces, which otherwise go unrecognized, mm. or go unseen or unheard. Mm. It's a, yeah, mm. it's a, let's call it that, a radical act. Yeah, totally. And, that, and that's also like fundamentally what I think is going to help us accomplish, not that we need to be focused on any kind of mission either, um, of defying this notion of a singular way of articulating what black art is, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because we're we all we're all different, <laughs> you know what I mean. Hello, yeah. we're all different. We all have different ways of seeing the world, yeah. you know. And the more that there is space given to interiority, yeah. the more that that can be, I think, um, understood. Yeah, um, I want to come to a different film, your most recent film actually. It's a collaboration with Arthur Jaffa, uh, which just opened. A week ago? Yeah. Yeah, a week ago uh, at MoMA as part of the exhibition just above Midtown, yeah. um, which is a film called A Negro, A Limo. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you, I mean, no one here, well, actually, in fact, if you've been in New York in the last week, you might have seen it. Yeah. But could you, you know, do us the kind of honor of just kind of describing mm. yeah. that film or not? But yeah, well, so the title, I should say, comes from this poet, John Ferris, who was uh, based in New York. And um, Linda, you know, she was working on this show with Thomas Lack for, for quite a while. And I think about a year ago, we started having conversations or Zoom calls with uh, myself and Thomas and, and AJ. And it really started off in this loose way of kind of trying to think about, you know, it wasn't prescriptive. You know, mm. Linda wasn't sort of saying, can you can you guys make this so thing? just as as context sorry just above midtown yeah, okay. it's a show that really looks back in part at uh, its pioneering avant-garde black avant-garde uh, exhibition space um just above midtown uh, but also includes new commissions yeah of works inspired by the same spirit mm -hmm. as the yeah. original work so this is uh, yeah where you're yeah from. and jam you know jam was a space that linda had created that was you know, actually, I think she would say it's really important to understand the distinction that it was not in response to um, white institutions yeah. or white gallery spaces. It really was unto itself its own 
thing yeah. that allowed artists to make work that was not directly in response to anything else but what they wanted to make. Um, and so this was, and so for her, you know, the question also was like, can I do that at MoMA? Is it possible to, yeah. to do this retrospective in an institution like MoMA? And I think she was interested in how AJ and I, who, I, you know, I think we have very different approaches to getting to essentially kind of the same mm. thing. Um, how did we want to take on that task? Um, and I think we both knew right away, like it wasn't about trying to, and I should say also like, so Linda gave us this hard drive that had like t um, uh, so much amazing material of just like parties and openings and performances and, um, you know, it's like one of those things where you're like, fuck, like this could be, this is like five years of, yeah. of really fine tuning and really trying to do this, this justice. Um, but a lot of, a lot of what I saw in that material and a lot of what I remembered being a, being a kid and sort of meeting a lot of these folks like Steve Cannon as well, um, right before they had kind of, you know, passed on, Steve passed, uh, I think about two or three years ago, um, was that what Linda had done was that she had facilitated a space for artists to actually contradict one another and to get into arguments and to, um, and to get into deep discussions that were not personal, mm. but that were really just about being rigorously and vigorously into intellectual. Yeah. Um, and, and how few and far between those spaces were. And actually today I would say that that's still very much needed mm. and very hard to facilitate. Um, and so what we were interested in, I was really interested in like, well, how do we, how can I make something that's evoking that, mm. you know? Um, and I think, so basically our process, sorry, this is very long-winded, guys, I meant to be <laughs> no, kind of quick about it, but um, we, it was fun because we kind of just talked and then we went and did our own thing um, and then we fit it together like Legos, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that that, we weren't trying to get to some kind of singular thing. I think just by nature of our differences and being able to have space facilitated to be different, it actually spoke to that very mm -hmm. thing, which is that, you know, black art can't be defined in any kind of singular way, you mm -hmm. know? And I think there's also just this question of like, you know, also abstraction and, and again, overt subject matter and like, what is the relationship between those two things and um, to the end of what blackness is or black art is? Or not? I mean, we're going to go to questions in a minute, but the, the kind of last question. I think you've talked about how you're interested in reframing everyday experience and about how you're interested in bringing an understanding of how abstract and fantastical even the mundane is. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout, well, these three works we've been talking about, there's an extraordinary capacity to look at the ordinary world, mm. as it were, and see in there a route to something that can be strange or beautiful mm. or rich or compelling or mesmerizing, all of these things. Again, am, am I just, is that, is that a valid way of thinking about what you're doing? I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I try to, at the end of the day, all I really care about is that somebody feels something, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, I think that the everyday is so trippy already. I mean, the fact that we're just, like, what are we? <laughs> we're like, you know, like, it's so weird. The whole thing is so yeah. weird to begin with. And, um, 
So it's not even that hard to, yeah. you know, I think it's just about giving ourselves the time and the space to, um, to sit with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, anyone could be on the corner or film people in this building and it would be amazing. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, anyone could do it, whether it would be amazing or not. I, I would <laughs> find it amazing. Uh, construction yeah. work, like you watch how things get built. It's like crazy. Like yeah. these huge cat uh, yeah. machines and it's, it's, I don't know. I think there's, it's, there's endless possibility around yeah. us. How the space was even built. I mean, it's anyway, it's totally. A, a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist, he talks about how, how everyone is walking around with a universe inside their head. Yeah. Which. Totally. Yeah. I think totally. about that a lot. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. I was actually just watching, because it's so fun being in London where you can watch things like all of Adam Curtis's films, mm. like just by turning on the TV. And um, I can't remember which, you know, I literally mm -hmm. watched like way too many, a lot of this, like, uh, I don't know when, like late at night, late mm -hmm. at night. And, um, but there's this, he was talking a little bit about how um, there's, there's some science that shows that like our brain, there's a theory that our brains are just total chaos but that there's like one part of our brain that just tries to make sense of it and basically just makes everything really abstract, mm. you know, which is, and then that led to like essentially what the alg what algorithms are, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but this one little thing that's supposed to, that turns thing that makes sense of everything yeah. is actually what we align with for our personalities, yeah. like for who we are. And if it's a theory, so, you know, who knows, <laughs> may or may not be true, yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Question. If anyone... On that very generative note. Yeah. Who's got a question? Ah, yeah. oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, hi, Garrett. Hi. I, I kind of want to just... That last part made me think about... I know, Garrett, you're such a cinephile, and mm -hmm. film is such a big part of your life. I'm just curious, with this new film, Safe, are there any connections to other films? And we haven't, you know, mm. the first in AKA, there's a conversation about that, but I'm curious, mm. you know, I know sci-fi might come into this or something <laughs> else, but I'm curious <laughs> if there's any other moving image. Yeah, um, I mean, definitely. Um, it's funny, I was just talking, uh, I can't remember who I was talking, I was talking to somebody about David Lean's film, uh, The Ol Oliver Twist. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, actually my mom I think is here, she might be able to confirm this or not, but I think it, to me it was like the first image, like film I really remember, just it, I, could, I could frame by frame tell you the first minute of that film. And it's this woman who's, she's about to give birth and she's climbing up this hill in a rainstorm to go to the orphanage. And there's really vivid, lightning and you can tell that it's a combination between both sets and real on location um, footage and I don't know I mean I, I I know that it's in there somewhere I think it's actually maybe in like every movie <laughs> I've ever made um, but I was hugely I mean you know David Lean was a huge influence um, Cassavetes, Wong Kar Wai, Tarkovsky, um, Julie Dash you know, Diary of an African Nun. I was telling someone it's a short film that's um, I actually hadn't seen until relatively mm -hmm. recently and is inc just impeccable. 
Um, so I don't know. I mean, I could go on mm -hmm. and on, but I think, yeah, probably. Don't be shy, guys. There's a microphone. Hey, Garrett. Hi. Um, you mentioned uh, two sort of quite early films, like The Imitation of Life and um, the film Giant, which of course mm. is with Rock Hudson and uh, Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean. Yeah. How have these um, very early films from the sort of 30s, 40s and 50s, this sort of golden era of uh, Hollywood, how, how has that influenced your work generally? Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I think right now in this moment, answering that question, I think um, the constraint that exists within those films is really interesting to me. Um, just that they, you know, as I said, they were so confined by their time period and by who was allowed to make films. Um, I mean, Giant's an interesting one because it's, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, essentially is a feminist, you know, um, and you're dealing with, you know, notions of like what immigration is in Texas and stolen land and the indigenous relationship and the, this idea of, of, you know, wealth essentially. And um, I mean, there's so much that's also still so relevant to today. It's crazy. And like what would, you know, to me it feels inevitable like to, you can't not ask those same questions. They're begging to continue to be asked. Um, and that doesn't necessarily take away from the visual element of how the, the form of those films and how they are articulated, but it does it does open up a lot of exciting possibilities to think about when something isn't conceptually constrained, what it could actually mean then formally and how it could like visually probably have been, how it can be innovated. Well, first of all, thank you for this conversation and the intriguing uh, information that I have been served and for your modera moderation especially. It's not so easy to take all the information from the artist, <laughs> but really perfect. And anyway, I'm spoiled today because I had the opportunity to see your exhibition in the Listen Gallery. And while I have been watching all the videos still that we are seeing in front mm. of us, I, s I was listening to the sound in the exhibition mm. and talking about sound. I was wondering how you include the sound because it has such a dominant function also. It's not only mm. illustrating, but it's really like a work itself in the exhibition mm. spaces. I yeah. could feel it. And I wanted to know how you uh, create these uh, sounds, noises, where you take them from and mm. how you transfer them so they are fitting to the image in kind of a synesthesia, as mm -hmm. I could describe this effect. Yeah, you know, I just learned that word. I think someone said what that word mm. meant. I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it's like. I also met John, but it's not a quotation from him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're so, gosh. I mean, the way Udit and I talk about it, at least, is that he's always like, you know, you're the architect and he's the designer, you mm. know? But we really, you know, this is the first time we were able to sit down in the same space together. Um, and really re like build it one layer at a time. Back in the day, I would do that with really janky uh, sound libraries, you know? Um, and there's this, you know, I, I, I think that when you're making, when I'm making a film, I'm really paying attention to what's, even if I'm in a black box, there's always some kind of connection to what is actually happening in the exterior world. And I'm either recording it right in that moment or I'm going back to record those things. 
And so you have sort of a base, like you have your key ingredients. And then you start to look at the material. And it kind of works the same way that just filmmaking does. You have so many different phases of something are revealing to you what it's going to be. So you have the conversation. You write down your script, what, even if that's two sentences, right? It keeps, then you start filming it, then you start editing it, and, and each one of those iterations actually reveals itself as being something different to you. Kind of just like a human being growing, you know? Who you are when you're five years old. I mean, some people could say you're the same person, but there are other elements that are, that are changing and evolving, right, in each one of those things. So the sound, I'd say, grows in the same way that the film does, you know? We've got, I think, uh, well, you've got it, and then we'll go to, then we'll, then we'll go to the people at the back, we, but we won't forget you. Hi, Garrett. I wanted to ask about um, two things, sort of, um, thank you for talking about America and the sort of, and the flags. I hadn't actually thought about it in that way, mm -hmm. but the way that you use transparency when you're sort of looking at the images, the four images, you're always mm -hmm. looking more than one image, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing I wanted to sort of ask about, the sort of the strategy around that possibly. Yeah. Um, but also lens flares. Mm. Like the way, you know, in SAFE, the way the lens flares are used in an AKA. Mm -hmm. But also when you're in the gallery space with America, if you're positioned between the two projectors in such a way, you get a lot of flaring, a lot of lens flares. Mm. Um, can you, is there anything you yeah. want to share about that? Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, yeah, so with America, um, it's funny because there's the crossfade, which is, you know, and sorry, if I'm sure you guys know, but I'm not gonna make an assumption, but you know, when you're editing, you have this little, you have a timeline and they're like these little blocks together and then you can, you can either manually do it or you can add filters that, you know, will make an image do this, right? And um, something happens psychologically when images have a moment to overlap with one another. Um, but I really, with America, it was really important that I not be God in that way, that I not be the person that's fully dictating what those visual connections can be. And so, you know, as I said, it's like depending on, I mean, no person is going to walk in exactly the same position when you're looking at a work like America. So that means that, and that's a, it's, it's sort of an analogy for how we understand history, right? It's really based on one's own proximity to it, you know, and how one is actually um, allowed to make connections and to see, to be able to see in a transparent way what those connections are when they're overlapped with one another. Um, and I think that, you know, the lens flare is like a totally, I mean, I'm sure there's connections, but in my brain right now, there's like totally, a totally different idea and interest around something I'm also really trying to get at, which is taking, take, there's, there's primary and there's secondary. And with America, you know, there's the primary work, but then there's secondary images that are happening as a result of that shadows all over the ground. And I'm really trying to understand, and it's going to take me a long time, but I think what it means to make the secondary the primary, you know? And the lens flares kind of are like helping me get there, I think a little bit. The lens flares happen as a result of a source of something. But when you just focus on them as their own thing, it, um, I don't know, it gets somewhere that I'm interested in. Uh, why I'm not, I mean, I'm sure there's a reason. There, There is a reason. <laughs> 
Jamie Cook. Yeah. Um, I saw uh, AKA at Freeze last year. I was um, cooking in one of the restaurants, and so I had this sort of strange thing where I could, I got a chance to look around either right right at the beginning of the day before there was anyone in, um, and then one time I got off like when it was the busiest it was <laughs> at the weekend. Um, yeah. yeah, and I saw your piece the first time. I sort of had a wander around and. I found it like a very, and I thought maybe it was the time of day, quite a sort of, a, a, a pa like my pace slowed down, it felt like a calm pace, but yeah. um, I then had that feeling when I went back again, mm. and I just, yeah, I guess it was interesting hearing you talk about meditation, um, and I guess there was a sort of, yeah, to what degree um, through your work, and only really talking to that work at the moment without mm -hmm. having seen anything else you've done, um, just like to what extent that sort of pacing and speed and creating a kind of different place, a place that might have a different sort of tempo uh, mm. is important in your work mm. or not. Yeah, thank Yeah, thank you. I think, um, sorry, did you say, so you were working in the restaurant, are you a chef or? Uh, well, I work, um, I sort of do quite a few different things. So yeah. I work in the arts, I've also, um, yeah, also worked in restaurants. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I'm only asking because, like, I think that, um, and I will answer your question, but working in kitchens is so, to me, it's it's like making films. But you guys are making, like, I don't know, 100 films a night, you know? And you're getting, like, real feedback. Like, you're getting, like, immediate feedback right away on if it's working or not, you know? And it's crazy, but it's, and it's completely based on a sort of, like, hierarchy and, um, you know, I, see, I saw you like Twitch, you're like, oh, I don't know, not really, but like, from my, my perception I completely perception agree, having, being across like both the arts and having worked with food yeah. things, I completely, they're like, can be polar opposites, and mm. yeah, I always found that the, the hierarchy of food was something that I found quite problematic. Totally, oh yeah, I'm not saying it's like cool, yeah. it's like, it's, but it's how it happens, you know, like, actually being on the line. Um, Anyway, so I kind of wonder if, I also, I, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people. In New Orleans, there's a huge service industry that's there. So I have a lot of friends that work in kitchens. And there is always this debate on if the energy that happens in the kitchen is infused in the food. Because, you know, mm. there's also that conversation around, like, eating meat and the way in which animals are killed. Does it actually, are you eating the anxiety of the animals? Uh, anyway, I could go on and on, but I think it depends on the, the film. The film really is what tells me what the the what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like and then that that sometimes really does change throughout the process the production process but the intention always is the same like you know sometimes you can make like amazing chicken soup but if just every time you make it you might make it a little different but you know you know you want to have the acid right you know in it okay we've got time for a couple more questions maybe Hi. Hi. Um, earlier, you said that uh, you've been paying a lot of attention to your thoughts and mm. like the different thoughts that reoccur during the day, which I thought was really interesting because mm. um, I think everyone feels that, but we don't like passively acknowledge what we think. And then you also said that your process is a bit like a Russian nesting doll in the sense of mm. you want to get to the meat of it, but you have to like kind of break it down piece by piece. Mm -hmm. I was wondering how you 
don't get bogged down mm. by those reoccurring thoughts mm. um, like that may not have a specific answer, but mm. obviously try to proceed to get to the meat of whatever it is you're creating. Mm. Thank you for that question. Yeah, I think, um, well, being bogged down by certain sort of thoughts is one thing. Then there's also just trying to get to what you're making. And I think that, you know, if you think just going back to just us as like a species, you know, um, I think part of our whole existence here is man is physically creating things out of, you know, we have things in our mind and then life is really about getting it out, you know? And, and then the, the challenges that are presented in the physical realm, in the physical dimension, um, is what it's all about. So I have to remind myself of that when I'm, when I want to give up and when I'm like, I can't, I just, you know, when I feel like a failure, it's really about just remembering that's why we're here, you know, is to go through that process. The other like intrusive thought thing, which somebody else used that term talking about meditation. I don't consider them intrusive, but I guess because, you know, again, it's like we're human. Like, what else are you doing? But thinking thoughts. But, um, you know, I think meditation just helps because you can be like, oh, it's that thing again, you know, and then it goes away the minute you see it. It's like a shadow, you know, somehow you put a flashlight on it or something. Actually, I, I do. I can see that. Okay, very selfishly. I know I'll give it over to them and take it back. But um, I wanted to just ask about your, your choice of title. Oh. America. Safe. Time. Can you reflect a little bit? And you, I mean, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot packed into this. Yeah. Is there a deliberate set of references in art, historical or other? I'm just interested in how you come to those and yeah. how you come to these. Yeah, just. Mm. Um, well, I find it one very challenging. I think it's literally, it, to me, it's like one of the hardest parts of the whole process because you're really, I mean, I had a cat. I like couldn't name the cat, you know, <laughs> like someone else had to name the cat. It's really, it's just, it's hard. It's so definitive. And, you know, and for me, I want to keep it. Really, there's also a lot of fun and playfulness, but then mm. having to choose something and stick with it is what's really hard. Um, I think America was the one title where I really felt like there was, I actually don't love the title and I didn't, I didn't feel like, yeah, that, that the mm -hmm. reason I chose it for a very specific reason, which was that I knew, uh, you know, eventually, you know, everything exists on the internet in some way. And I liked the idea of being able to disrupt the algorithm of what, pops up when you type America, you know? Um, and there's something kind of nice actually about everything <laughs> being able to do that when you choose really specific mm. words. I'm not saying that I'm thinking about the algorithm every time I'm coming up with a title. I mean, there's there's a lot that goes into, again, really the intention, the, the intention and trying to think through the, the essential nature of what the intention is. But, um, but that is something that has played a role in mm -hmm. trying to make those decisions, you mm. know? I'd like to think with safe, it really is, it's fundamentally what we were trying to get at. You know, how do you feel safe? Mm. What makes you feel safe? How do you get there? That seems done. to be... I think on that safe, safe <laughs> Thank you. note, um, let's... Uh,